Welcome everyone to the Capitalism, Nature, Socialism podcast. My name is Linda Kikivish and I'm a board member of Capitalism, Nature, Socialism journal. And we are here joined today by Kelly Kay, who is assistant professor in geography at UCLA, who has co-written an article with, uh, uh, with her graduate student, uh, Andrea Fernando, uh, which will be published in Political Geography. It's about the LA New Deal and labor resistance. And it's a topic that is really important at this moment as we're talking about how we're going to intervene in climate collapse. There is a national agenda for the Green New Deal and there are some municipal sites that are creating their own Green New Deals and Los Angeles is one of those. And so Kelly here joins us today to talk about what the LA Green New Deal is about and what the response has been, particularly from workers who work for the energy company, the municipal energy company, the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. Welcome so much, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here today and to get to talk a little bit about this work. So Kelly, your article with, together with Andrea is called Labor Resistance and Municipal Power, Scalar Mismatch in the Los Angeles Green New Deal. And I wonder if we can begin by talking about a little bit about what's going on with the LA Green New Deal, what the labor resistance is and what you mean by scalar mismatch. Sure, um, well, to start, um, so Andrea and I became interested in this topic in 2019. Um, she's been doing work on the German coal phase out for her dissertation research. And at the time I had been doing some work on urban um, oil drilling in Los Angeles. And so it, it became this interesting meeting point. So in, in 2019, the mayor of Los Angeles, I think it was April, 2019, um, announced the closure, the planned closure of three natural gas fired power plants, um, all in South Los Angeles. So um, they're called Haines, the Haines Harbor and Scattergood generating stations. Um, and I think that this was something that was very unexpected. So prior to the announcement, um, Los Angeles did have a sustainability plan and was committed to reducing carbon emissions and um, committed to other kinds of environmental interventions. Um, I think Los Angeles in many ways has always sort of been on the cutting edge of, of US cities in terms of its environmental planning. Um, and so for um, many years, Los Angeles had something called the Sustainable City Plan. And sort of as it was conveyed to us very last minute, um, the mayor decided that he instead wanted to use this as an opportunity to commit to 100% renewables and doing that required um, committing to phasing out natural gas um, power, you know, fired power in the city. And this was, I mean, I think a really surprising announcement. Um, so these three facilities that were being, that are being phased out are 27% of um, the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power's um, total capacity, so to serve its, four, I think, 14 million customers, um, but it's 89% of the capacity in, in Los Angeles. So it was a very, very large portion of all of the local power capacity um, in the city. And um, I think people were not expecting this announcement. There, there were state-level regulations that were going to require these um, plants to be, um, you know, either reconfigured or repowered in certain ways. And some of that was already in process. So committing to just sort of shutting them down was, um, was surprising. And so when this announcement came out in, in April of 2019, and we had been doing these two separate projects, we realized, well, this is really interesting. Um, I don't think we could have anticipated this. And, um, you know, Andrea doing work on European um, coal phase outs was surprised because she was saying that it's very unusual to phase out natural gas in general. Um, for a long time, natural gas was seen as a bridge fuel. That there was a whole narrative around natural gas as sort of a bridge getting us off of coal and onto renewables. And so because of that, and I think because of the relative newness of natural gases, uh, fired power plants as a technology, most of the natural gas fired plants in the U.S. are still within their um, their usable lifetimes. Most of them were built 
um, at the 1960s or later. So this was not only surprising, but unprecedented in certain respects. And that was and our initial entry point into this was um, so we we put in some, uh, for some grants and, and what we really wanted to understand was, you know, given that there's actually not a lot of information on how you um, phase out natural gas fired power, especially given this really strong dependence on it, um, what challenges is Los Angeles going to face? And then also what kinds of insights um, could we take from this phase out to think about decommissioning um, other kinds of fossil fuels, especially natural gas um, reliant um, plants in the future. And so that was kind of our initial entry point. Um, early on, we realized that Los Angeles was a really unique case because um, the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power is municipally owned, which isn't necessarily unusual in the US, but with energy deregulation, um, a lot of which happened in the 1990s, a lot of um, power companies went private or are investor owned, um, which I think, well, there's a whole tangent I could go on there and I won't, um, but Los Angeles has owned its water and power systems for a long time. Um, and the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power is the largest municipal utility in the US and is also the largest vertically integrated utility, which means that not only does the city own the utility, but the utility owns all of its generating capacity, which is also a bit unusual. Um, oftentimes cities will buy power from independent power producers. And there are all sorts of structures in across the US to sort of balance the buying and selling of power. So LA is very sort of, um, self-contained in a way that makes it interesting to look at. And I think also um, one of the reasons we thought, um, in addition to the, the um, novelness of the natural gas element, I think one of the things we thought was um, important is that there has been a push to think about energy municipalization. There's, there's all of this talk about trying to remunicipalize remunicipalize, sorry, energy systems, right, to, to sort of go to the local scale, to think about decarbonization at the local scale. And while LA is a very big city, we actually thought it could be an interesting and instructive case for what dealing with these things at a more local level looks like. And so, and yeah, so initially, the labor aspect was actually not at the forefront of our minds. But as, so the for the project we reviewed, um, 40 years of LA Times articles, um, a lot of city public meetings, the minutes or recordings. And then we did, I think 20, in the end, I think 22, um, one to two hour interviews with people on all sides of this. And one of the things that immediately came out was not what we were, were beginning with, but was the fact that the, um, the union at Los the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power or LADWP, um, which is the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 18 um, or IBEW 18 for short, were some of the biggest opponents to this, this plan and this phase out process. And so very quickly we realized that this was really, really important to understand. I think LA is often touted as one of the more progressive cities in the US and well, it's certainly not new that labor um, has pushed back on, um, you know, the phase out of, of fossil fuels, especially when their jobs are reliant on it. We really weren't anticipating this in a place like Los Angeles. Um, so that's sort of how we got to looking at labor. And that brings us to the labor piece of the article, which we're talking about today. Ooh. <laughs> okay. So basically, let's see. I'm trying to see if there's anything I needed to, to mention that I didn't already mention. Okay. So labor, you know, on the day that the, I think the article begins here, but basically many, many people from various sides that we were interviewing told us the same story that on the day that the mayor made this big announcement about the LA Green New Deal at like the mayor's 
big private residence in a fancy part of Los Angeles in Hancock Park, um, that the union was outside picketing outside of this party that he threw to announce. Um, and then this was not the beginning, or this was sort of the beginning of, of other actions to come. So they um, protested outside of LADWP's headquarters, their workplace. Um, there was the formation of a group called Working Californians that was sort of a political action committee, committee and advocacy arm of the union pushing back on decarbonization um, and on Mayor Garcetti specifically. So they were running attack ads and buying billboards and doing all sorts of things to um, to sort of discredit him, to, to raise concern about the fact that the LA Green New Deal was going to um, lead to, to expensive gas prices and, and harm working families and working Californians. Um, they supported other candidates that were running for office that were were less committed to decarbonization. Um, so this this tension, I think, sort of my understanding is is still ongoing, but is sort of working on being resolved. And also, um, we are having a mayoral election right now, so this gets at I think one of the things that's that I'll mention later as being important. But soon, the mayor that the opposition is. Um, directed at will no longer be the mayor and the, whomever is the new mayor will have a different set of priorities potentially. So we do see this as sort of maybe potentially being a momentary conflict, but a very important one. And so in the article, basically what Andrea and I try and do is explain why the union, why IBEW 18, um, which I should have mentioned earlier, employs 92% of all of the employees at at LADWP. So it, they're unique in that um, while I think a lot of unions, uh, like many workplaces will have multiple unions that, that represent people in different positions. What's I think unique about IBEW 18 is that it represents all of the workers at DWP. So um, clerical workers, tree trimmers, um, electrical workers. So you have this solidarity amongst the workplace that's really strong and I think unique and led to this ability to really come together in opposition um, because everybody was part of the same union. So one of the things that we focus on is this idea of scale. And by that, we mean the, um, the levels at which interventions occur. And, and we borrow this concept of scale um, that from two other geographers, Brown and Purcell, who, who make this interesting point that scale and scalar configurations are not an independent variable that can cause outcomes, but rather they're a strategy used by political groups to pursue a particular agenda. So if you think, for example, about, um, we could think of, of all these potentially pre-given scales, the local, the state, the national, the international. And this framework, I think, argues that the scales at which people intervene are the ones that work for their agendas and that they, they don't necessarily neatly fit together. And so working from that understanding of scale as not sort of prefixed that the mayor works at the local scale and the union works at the local scale because they're both local actors, right? We try and understand and unpack um, how scale plays into this conflict between the, the mayor's office's agenda and the union's agenda. And there are three things that we see that are really important. So the first is this, um, th that the mayor and the union are in some respects operating politically at different scales that are almost bypassing one another. Um, so the union is a local entity that is largely involved in local politics. And as I mentioned earlier, right, they're funding political candidates for a local office that that meet their um, that sort of fulfill their their goals um, that that help them to move towards the Los Angeles that they want to see they are involved in um, you know ads pitched towards the citizens of Los Angeles and and what we get at this at the article in the article a little bit but that in general I think that 
um, local politicians in large U.S. cities often have aspirations, and I think this is probably the case outside of the U.S., right? but they often have political aspirations beyond that. And so in some respects, the scales that the mayor's operating at politically are very different. He's part of the international climate community. He's the, the mayor, or he's the, the mayor, the leader of the C40 network, which is the um, which is an international network of mayors, um, and C40 stands for the City's Climate Leadership Group. Um, and so he's he's talking to other mayors and other um, politicians at an international scale. So his goals towards creating an LA Green New Deal are geared towards thinking about setting politics and, and making models that can be taken up by actors all over. Meanwhile, the union, right, is operating at a totally different scale. They're simply just trying to live in the city where they live. Um, and so there is a bit of misunderstanding, I think, and some issue that comes in there. So that's the first thing that, that we um, identify as one of the issues. Um, the second is the difference between, hang on, just want to make sure I, um, the second has to do with differences between where energy is being um, consumed and where energy workers live and then where energy in, is being produced for the city of Los Angeles. And this is, I think, a super, super important point and one that is really important for thinking about movement struggles and other things beyond this specific case in Los Angeles. So um, the the one of the people we interviewed who works on the power system described it to us as basically being like a spider where the head is in Los Angeles and then all of the legs stretch out across this vast expanses of space to connect these large utility scale power production facilities to Los Angeles. So the LEDWP system currently is situated um, in five U.S. states outside of California, six total. Um, so Washington, Oregon, Utah, um, Nevada, California, and Arizona. Um, it's connected through 3,600 miles of transmission lines and 10,400 miles of distribution lines. So really the local power system, the city of Los Angeles is extremely non-local, again, with these scalar questions. And this is important um, because we're thinking about how to transition the system. And so the, the utility brought in um, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory to do the what, some of the most um, involved modeling exercises um, for modeling what renewable energy transitions look like. And so the, the National Renewable Energy Lab or NREL is like a federal entity that's located in Colorado who is sort of on the forefront of, of all things energy. So this was a big, this was a big get to get them to do this. And this was an extremely big undertaking. And at the end of it, where, where they landed was that um, somewhere between 78 and 89% of renewables generation. So replacing that natural gas capacity and also other facilities. There's a coal-fired power plant in Utah um, and other plants that are part of the system that will need to be um, changed or, or phased out or, you know, there's there's things that need to happen outside of Los Angeles as well, which I should have mentioned earlier. But but basically what, what NREL's modeling exercise came up with is that, as it's mentioned, 78% to 89% of this, this renewables generation that's gonna need to happen to get to 100% um, is gonna have to happen outside of the Los Angeles basin. So we're, we're sort of continuing this dependence on out of, out of county, out of city, and definitely out of state facilities. And there's an understanding that it's likely that, that the system is going to have to permeate actually even deeper into the um, the center of the country, I, I've heard estimates as much as being in 11 of the 50 U.S. states. Um, and because, again, LADWP is vertically integrated, that means that the, the utility itself is going to have to own or partially own a lot of these large wind, solar, and other kinds of facilities um, all over the country. So when we think about um, when we go back to the workers and we think about the system that they're operating in, they were operating in some of the only 
facilities that were actually anywhere near where they lived. And so while there, you know, I think this raises a really important point for moving beyond this case, but when we think about creating jobs in renewable energy, it's really important to think about where they are and to really have an understanding of what these systems look like. Because for the case of Los Angeles, LADWP can continue to be vertically integrated and to own its own capacity and transmission lines, but that might not benefit the, the utility workers in Los Angeles County who have you know, long worked in LA and, and don't really have, have ties. They, they don't want to move. Even, um, you know, I think one of the, we talked to a utility worker who told us a story about how some of the work, some of the, the facilities that are close in um, are solar facilities in the Antelope Valley. And um, for, this is very like uh, local chatter for Los Angeles, but uh, as a city that has really, really terrible traffic and with these original facilities that are being shut down, being located on the south coast um, in you know, places uh, like Inglewood or Long Beach, and then having these same people have to commute what could be hours round trip to still be able to work um, in the county, but just so, so far, so many miles in such a different climate, um, doing very different work. I mean, I mean, it's important to keep these things in mind. And I think that that gets to the fact that um, we need, you know, that the, the workers probably should have been more involved from the jump in, in thinking through this, but I think that's probably a pretty obvious statement. Um, but yeah, thinking about, you know, the, the system itself and then the locations of the workers, you understand that there is this mismatch that's likely not just going to be something that happens in Los Angeles. And then the third thing that we highlight, oh, and I think this is really important and is very non-LA specific, is this issue of jurisdiction and the sort of limitations of cities to make large-scale investments and to make large-scale commitments. And so um, we we get into sort of the finance, in the paper, we get into the finances of, of the city of Los Angeles a little bit. And um, you know, so LA is a big city that doesn't have a lot of big budgets and actually the power produced by the, the utility produces a not insubstantial amount of um, the city's general fund. I think it's um, five to 8% of, of the city of Los Angeles's total general fund comes from um, things like power sales um, from LADWP. So the union is actually a really important revenue gen, or the, the utility rather is a really important revenue generator. Um, and so there's a really strong desire, I think to some extent to maintain the status quo. And um, you know, the, the year to year dependence really points out, I think an important thing, which is the reliance or the, the way that city budgeting might differ from the way that like a federal government is able to spend. And I think this is a really important thing when we think about renewable energy transitions at a more localized scale. So the federal government, for example, can go into a deficit in a way that many, many US cities have laws on the books that actually don't allow them to, to really amass either a surplus or a deficit. So it makes it very hard to invest in the kinds of long-term um, job training or, or um, compensation or other things that might be required to ensure that these kinds of just transitions actually occur. I mean, the city has some capacity to create jobs and to spend, but it has much more limited time horizons. And my point earlier about we're having a mayoral election and decarbonization hasn't really even been on the agenda is important because you know we have a turnover every few years. And so the ability to, to undertake these long-term, large-scale, expensive transitions is very challenging at the municipal scale. And I think that a lot of the worker concern stems from this, the fact that while you know the current mayor was very concerned about environmental issues and, and has been trying to work with them, it's very hard to know what's what the next administrations even care about, or if this is even gonna be a priority. And uh, 
it's a lot harder to sort of enshrine these things into law or to take on the large, these kinds of large scale undertakings um, than it might be at a state or a federal scale. So, right, the, the workers are, are locked in at this local scale, which doesn't necessarily have the ability to plan ahead for them. And a lot of the, a lot of the interviews that we did with folks um, who, who were um, either organizers or were union workers said this, right, that, that this was one of the big concerns is how do we know that they're looking out for us? They can't plan 10 or 20 years into the future. So it makes it very hard to have confidence in this plan, um, given that we don't really know what's coming. So that's kind of the gist of, of what we did and what we found. That, that's really enlightening. The, the entire article, because you, you did semi-structured interviews with people from, from labor all the way to the political offices. And so you're able to get, and anonymously, so I, in a way they were able to be a bit more, maybe more honest, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we have is a lot, a lot of really rich context, different contexts. I think that's the, the key insights that we get with the scalar approach, like looking at different scales. So we have the mayor who's supposed to be local, except that it's a major city of the, Uni of the United States. And what we do see as one of, one of the folks that you interviewed mentioned is that there are political aspirations. Usually in California, that looks like you become governor of California and then you become president of the United States, right? So there's already that scale that the mayor is focused on. And at the same time, as you mentioned, their participation in C40 and not only participation, but the current mayor of LA is the chair of this network of 40 cities around the globe that are trying to make policy about things like this, about climate, climate policy, right? And, and so then where's the accountability for that, right? And, and then we have LADWP, the LA Department of Water and Power, and the local workers there who are who live in LA, they live in the city that they provide energy for. And so their focus very much, as you're saying, uh, and to their local condition, their local existence, their ability to not to not just survive, but also thrive, which is again, one of the, the great gains of union organizing was more than a, li a livable wage, right? And I think in your in your article, it was mentioned that sometimes an, an LA D the DWP worker uh, can support many families, not just one, with that salary. And at the same time, and you have a really great map in your article that shows how LA, where LA receives its energy from, as you mentioned, those five other states, Washington, Oregon, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, and how they all come in. And so LADWP is not just local, it's also uh, trans, uh, interstate, I guess, trans state. <laughs> Uh, and so then the mismatch then comes in that uh, these, the, these movements, and we can call the mayor's office a movement, we can call it LA, the union workers movement, are, 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 are existing in, a different, in different political geographies, even though they're supposed to all be in the city of Los Angeles. And we usually are taught that when we think about political geography, we, we're, we're, we're un, we are taught that territory is a container, it's either a city or it's a state, a nation state. The question of climate change though, how do we even talk about a local spot on the planet when it's the planet, it's integral planet, life on the planet is what's, what's, what's the main question. And at the same time, these very understandable questions of, you know, why are the workers so upset? That's, that seems to be your main question. And it is a question that a lot of folks uh, don't ask. Instead, they might just vilify folks. And I, I hear a lot about this in movements, movement spaces when talking about West Virginia coal miners. Oh, they're just white racists, et cetera, is how they're dismissed and not understood that, they're, that they have legitimate reasons for being upset at these deals, largely because they don't take them into account. Your paper pointed out that a lot of these, um, or one of, the, one of the folks that you interviewed, that the sentiment is that a lot of these policies are coming from academics, politicians, technocrats, and they don't take into account people, workers who then just kind of become disposable. And there is, like you're saying, the, 
the the argument that yes, jobs will be lost, but new ones will be created. And what your paper and Andrea's paper shows so well is that yeah, jobs are created, but they're not necessarily in the same spot where they were lost, right? And so it's as if people are just interchangeable and disposable in that way. Definitely, yeah, that was a great, uh, I think summing up of, of the key points of the article and that the workers at LADWP are unique, I think also because a lot of them come from communities of color and are people of color. And in addition to that, have borne the brunt of a lot of environmental injustice in the Los Angeles area because of the fact that they live in communities that also have, in addition to having gas fired power plants, also have oil refineries um, and other kinds of toxic places um, and also a lot of oil drilling and other things going on. And so these communities have have borne the brunt of a lot of environmental um, pollution and also, you know, have have sort of simultaneously been able to a lot of some of them, at least to have these good family wage jobs. And so when those jobs are not localized in those communities anymore, uh, that is really problematic. And so I think it is increasing, it is always important that we don't just ask like how many jobs are being created by renewable transitions, but where where are those jobs located? And are the same people benefiting? And what happens to the people who are in these communities who maybe now aren't working in these facilities? What are they doing instead? Um, another thing that we mentioned, I think in passing in the article, but but get into a little bit in, in a report that we produced is that I think there's a, a lot of um, people who would say, oh, well, they should just get into a rooftop solar installation. That way they can work locally and contribute to renewable energies. And just by virtue of how that industry has developed in Los Angeles, it's it's non-unionized almost. It, it's, it's low paid contract work, non-unionized. So even some of the new jobs that are being created by these transitions are not the same kinds of quality union jobs that these folks held. And also working in a power plant is definitely for many people, pretty skilled labor. Um, you know, even maintaining utility scale solar or wind farms is not the same kind of skilled labor. And it's not the same kind of, a number of people said this to us that that you need someone at the plant 24 hours a day. You know, it's an all it's an all the time job, and it requires a lot of people working all the time. Versus, you know, just periodically going out to check and make sure that there's not really anything going on with these wind or or solar farms. So, yeah, it's it's not the same kind of work, and it's further away. And when it is similar work like rooftop solar, which is still less skilled it's non-union. So it, it's a bind in all these different directions. I think that's a really great, great move then to talk about the other context that your paper discusses. And that is the contemporary context of capital. We have a context of neoliberalism, which is where states are prioritizing creating a good business climate for foreign investment for any kind of investment. It doesn't necessarily have to be national. And austerity measures are put in place where then the priorities to create that good business climate largely mean the protection of private property, more policing as we're seeing now, and less education, less healthcare for, for the public. And at the same time, we're in a global system of empire where there can exist an organization, a, a networked organization of cities around the world that are making policy about very global issues. Mm -hmm. And even previously, the greater context of capitalism, even before neoliberalism, is the dispossession of all of us from any other kind of alternative where we can have other ways of living where we don't actually need jobs, except that now we're in a position where we have to have jobs, where we need money in order to survive. And so then that becomes the battleground is jobs. We saw these contradictions arising in terms of Mother Earth when it came to the Dakota Access Pipeline, where the AFL-CIO made statements in support of the construction of the pipeline precisely because it was going to create jobs. This is a battle that has been going on even way before that for, for decades and centuries is this, this massive contradiction in capital 
where what's centered is the human and not just all not just homo sapiens but a very specific political human of mm-hmm. of, of enlightenment uh western modernity that now we're trying to like all fit into so that we could have rights because that human has rights the human above nature so then nature is exploitable so that human beings can live and thrive on earth that that seems to be a, a grounding logic of capital that doesn't often get talked about when it comes to uh, the green new deal the national green new deal for example which is is really just about not even questioning the ways that we're living instead just questioning carbon carbon uh, co2 emissions and so then it was you know i i, I raised my eyebrow of course you know like in a uh, when, when I saw in your, in your article, you point out that the electrical unions, union members are not all that upset about the Green New Deal, which makes a lot of sense because the Green New Deal isn't questioning our use of electricity or the amount of, of electricity that we use. Those, they'll still continue to have a job. But those who work in non-renewables are the ones that aren't going to have a job. And of course, they're going to be upset. But again, the question of is there a different way for us to live where we don't have to keep extracting from the earth? Because even with renewables, you know, we have issues of lithium mining that people like Elon Musk say, oh, we, we have the right to, to, to overthrow governments if we need to, when he was talking about Bolivia. And in the Congo, the extraction of cobalt is devastating even further that geography. And so again, these questions of capital themselves aren't really at, at on the table. It's just really about the transition into keeping the lifestyle that we have, especially in the global north, that's super consumerist and 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 very exhaustive of energy, and 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 then trying to figure out how we're going to make it so that we can all be okay. But then, as your as your piece points out. It doesn't it doesn't make it so that we're okay because well the logic of capital makes it so that we're all disposable we can just you know jobs it doesn't matter <laughs> it's, a, it's everything is a number it's not about actual lives really in that way so i wonder if in your interviews or if any of the of, of these battles that you're witnessing if you're seeing any movements or anything coming out of organized labor or even the environmental movement, which kind of, which clashes sometimes with the, with the union workers about this bigger question of how, how are we going to live in a different kind of way where the question of, of, of energy isn't, is actually on the table. The, the question of our energy use of extractivism continues to be on the table and not just CO2 emissions. I wonder if you heard anything like that because on the ground, I don't hear very much about that outside of Native American and Black struggles. Uh, and, and even not all Native American and Black struggles, more like the autonomous leaning kind. Um, uh, but the more that are focused on labor organizing, I don't hear that critique very much. And I wonder if you've, if you've heard it coming out of LA. I so wish that I could say, yes, let me point to some example of something that somebody said and I mean, it's all about tinkering at the edges, right? It's all uh, a lot of outside of the, you know, the change of the power system, most of what the rest of the LA Green New Deal is focused on is is what they term demand management, right? So thinking about how to get people to use less power and to use it at, at certain kinds of times, like it's all about nudging people's behavior in certain ways and maybe trying to reduce emissions from transportation and things like that. But it's... You know, for, I I mean, I think in some ways the LA Green New Deal is not a Green New Deal, even in the sense of like the way it's being thought of at the federal scale, because it, I think that, that again, with the sort of scales at which people are operating, the mayor is operating at this flashy international scale where everyone's thinking about and using this phrase of a Green New Deal. But to me, I think while Green New Deal, a true Green New Deal is not necessarily about a total, has not like introduced a total transformation. It does bring in other elements besides just sort of tinkering at the edges of the current system, right? It talks about things like like childcare, early childhood education or infrastructure or um, 
you know, all sorts of things that I think are really important to having a different kind of society with different kinds of solidarities and different kinds of, um, you know, ways of being more than something that's just about managing LA's under, you know, transitioning LA to 100% renewables, right? I think a true Green New Deal needs to be more holistic than that. And even then, it's, if we're talking about some of the federal scale Green New Deal plans that the US or other countries have put forth, um, none of which I think have, are a lot of which are sort of non-binding in the US, like the 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 federal Green New Deal was a non-binding resolution, but it, it was a document that tried to imagine at least to some extent a different way of being. And I don't I don't feel that that I think that the LA Green New Deal is, is much less ambitious in that way. And that may be some of the reason that people didn't get at these bigger questions of societal transformation. Um, but I really wish that it had, because I, I do think, so I mentioned earlier that in order to make this big transition that, that the, the city's facilities and transmission lines are, are likely going to have to span into as many as 11 states. And a lot of this talking about going into places like Wyoming that have a lot of indigenous communities. Um, also really importantly, and I should have mentioned this earlier, um, one of LADWP's um, long-owned facilities, the, um, the Navajo generating stations uh, on the Navajo Nation, and it was um, a coal-fired power plant that was linked in um, with the Cayenta coal mine, which is a Navajo-run coal mine, I think 40 or 50 miles away. And so, um, you know, I, I think when that that it's that situation has been really interesting because the the mine is closed and it's sort of this question of okay well well what do we do now right that like the navajo nation was was brought into the la power system and um i think they they present a really interesting counterpoint to something like west virginia coal miners right because they're also have long been dependent on a fossil fuel economy um and may have challenges transitioning away from it. Um, and other people like Andrew Curley have written about this um, really wonderfully about Navajo green jobs and things like this, right? Like how do we get off of coal? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's complex when even, like you said, actors that might have a more holistic conception of, of what it means to be in this world or of, of human environment or relations are still like deeply bound up in, in capitalism and in, in extractive economies. Yeah, and it's been a realization personally for me about how anti-capitalist I am, except I don't really know how to live without capital, without capitalism, you know, and, and that massive contradiction that that is and so then how it leads us to the only option we really receive under capitalism or under empire, and that is to, to, to continue the extraction of Mother Earth or continue making or devalorizing other beings, other beings of nature. This is, this is the logic that has, has led us to where we are with white supremacy and anti-Blackness where enslaved people aren't like wage workers. They don't have the same rights, for example. Uh, they don't have, there's no consent to work. There's no owning of your own labor power, right? And that's always been that logic, that central logic of capital. And of course, the rape and pillage of Mother Earth and other beings that aren't understood as like this proper political human that des is deserving of rights. And so then we're stuck. And so we're, we're stuck in making these horrible decisions about, uh, about and, and a lot of time we don't want to know. Not a lot of people know in Los Angeles where our electricity comes from. Not a lot of people know where our water comes from and all of the lands that have been devastated so that Los Angeles can have water, for example, throughout California and through those neighboring Western states too. And it's a very uncomfortable conversation to have, especially when we're doing social justice work on environment in our own complicity because it, I think it's difficult to have those conversations when we also don't accompany it with a structural analysis of how historical analysis of how the structure was created, because then it makes it really difficult. If we don't have that, we start to kind of blame ourselves uh, as the, the choices that we're making. And then we kind of move toward, well, I myself am going to live off the grid 
and, and well, for sure, for mental health purposes and for our own political personal ethics, that's great. It still does not engage the greater structure that has put us into this position where we have very limited choices. Yeah, totally. It was really interesting too. Another piece of the context that I was able to get from your piece is the mention of how the LA Green New Deal was largely drafted by PricewaterhouseCoopers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that this really gets at the the scalar thing, right? This is an ambition. This is a global ambition, and this is a test site for. And I mean, I think we should absolutely be. I don't want to say that I don't think that we should be thinking about the climate and doing anything we can to manage the climate crisis, but. Um, I'm not sure that like technocratic, um, like consult international consulting firms are the best people to be deciding how an, a city should be managing, right? And this is like, there's a lot written on like fast policy and policy transfer and geography and, and other related fields of the idea that like cities are often test cases for for policy that's being generated by entities outside of them. And then the policy just gets reproduced over and over and over again. You see it with like things like smart cities. Uh, I'm sure the LA Green New Deal is gonna be held up as a model that a lot of other cities are gonna take up. Um, and that's, I think why it's so important to understand how it came to be and what kinds of conflicts are embedded in it and what sorts of things are unresolved. And, um, and, and you know, I mean, so one thing I will, commend DWP for is that they've been doing like a really involved like consultation process with a lot of stakeholders to, to try and say like, okay, well, how do you feel about this plan? But my, my sense also is that that probably should have been happening before the plan itself was completed, right? So they're doing a lot of equity studies. They're at least thinking about equity, which is, I, I mean, in the sort of world that we live in, I can at least commend them. For, for trying, <laughs> but you know, whatever comes out of these processes is, is likely gonna be what many, many other cities are doing. And so it's just, I think really, really critical to know who's involved in where policy is coming from. And, and your article does a really great job of detailing that for us in a really readable way. It was really, I was reading it last night out loud together with a friend and we were, we were just remarking and pausing and thinking about how we're really not told, we're, we really don't know how policy is made. You know, we kind of think, oh, the mayor is gonna do it, but then we don't know what, what networks the mayor is embedded in. And we don't know, and even at small, smaller cities, not major metropolises like Los Angeles, but this is a case and, and we kind of see it, uh, a lot of city policy replicated. I don't know if folks have lived in different cities or, or visited different cities and have seen the processes of gentrification as an example. Gentrification looks the same in every city. It's like they, they it's like they hired the same firms to gentrify the city all, all over the country. It's like there's a recipe, right? So yeah, yeah. Well, I think they literally do. I mean, like Richard Florida, like urban guru, right? Is like runs a consulting. You know, I think technically a fellow geographer or urbanist like runs a consulting firm where cities hire him to, to tell them how to attract the quote unquote creative class. Mm -hmm. And literally every city is given the same recipe, right? So there's a reason. Right. Um, and it's, it's similar, right? That there are these kinds of like policy entrepreneurs and people that, that trade in making policy for other people. Yeah. And that PricewaterhouseCoopers helped draft the LA Green New Deal. I looked up PricewaterhouseCoopers to see where, how many countries are located in. And I think the number that I got last night was 157, which is close to the UN. It's close to a United <laughs> Nations mandate there. And no, so I've never, <laughs> I didn't realize that. I mean, I knew that they were one of the like, I think they call them the like big four, or big five, like international consulting and accounting firms. But I didn't realize they were in virtually every, you know, operating in virtually every country. It reminded me a lot of, of Huey Newton, the co-founder and main theoretician of the Black Panther Party. His his theorization of empire, and this was in the seventies, which which was uh, a premonition of what we're living today in greater scale. 
and that and what he he came to find was he was I think he was reading it was it Time magazine or or one of the Life magazine and there was an interview with one of the CEOs the U.S. based CEOs it may have been GM mm-hmm. uh, talk and this was the height of the Cold War talking about how uh, you know how are you going to do business how are you going to sell cars in countries that don't like the United States because there was this massive divide over pro NATO and pro USSR. And his response was, well, what flag do they want? Do they like? I, I have all the flags. I can wave whatever flag oh my they God. want. Yeah. Which then led Huey to, to theorize, wow, this, there's something going on with empire where we can't really, we can't contain it to the nation state. It is global. Which then for the Black Panthers, it led them to shift strategy from you know, being internationalists to being intercommunalists where... The strategy, the geographic, the, the geographic strategy for that was to network with communities from below in resistance, because he saw that from above that was already happening, that these corporations are already intercommunal and pointing to how, you know, you have this this network of mayors of cities and mayors like they're taking care of each other. And I can see how they do that, how you're saying like scale is a strategy. They do that to have pull for other ambitions and other scales, whether it's local Los Angeles with the example of Garcetti uh, and maybe Washington or or Sacramento and then Washington, right? Which then also uh, highlighted to me just that quick change in the name from the sustainable city plan to the Green New Deal, which came right at the moment when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and and Markey were putting together the national Green New Deal. It's kind of like a, a a branding strategy for him too to kind of like jump in on this and be like a visionary be seen as a visionary that has a plan that can then be replicated for all cities in the united states and so there are these 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 uh levers being pulled that we don't really know too much about and that's why i think that your piece is so important because it outlines through these channels through this anonymous uh reporting of folks right Uh, who are there, who know what's going on that can then help us all make decisions about how we organize as well. If they're, you know, as Huey was saying, if they're intercommunal from above, which he called reactionary intercommunalism, how are we then going to strategize to do a below revolutionary intercommunalism that is, is not just global in scale, but all the scale. So in that way, it's contextual uh, and it's going to look different in, in any kind of community where it might be more local in some instances and in other instances, the intensity is more national or the intensity is more international global. But like you're saying, scale is a strategy. It's not just a container where we're viewing uh, activity. Yeah, no, definitely agree. Um, what was, I was about to say something about um, something that you said about the C. I I mean, I think, the the C40 network was originally um, sort of created as a way of jumping scale for mayors in places maybe where the state that they are located in doesn't want to take climate action, right? So it's interesting to be able to see in some, I mean, it's an interesting space that in some ways it's it, it provides a way of, of speaking at the international scale, but like you said, in a way that's well networked, that's not inter intra-communal necessarily. You're just sort of jumping straight up to the to the IPCC or the UN as the mayor. And um and it's just sort of allowing you to operate as if you are um an actor that is in those venues rather than than asking like, okay, well, what can it's not the same as as being a mayor trying to think at the local scale about what you might do in your own community. And I think that sort of speaks to what you were getting at, right? It's it's a totally different strategy that bypasses community concerns to plug you directly into like sort of international um, climate concerns, which are totally different. They're super bureaucratic, technocratic, like it's all like the two degree, you know, the, the, the goals, the, the tipping points, these kinds of things, which I'm not saying are not important, but it's it's just not really the same kind of thing as as operating in in the place where you're at, you know. Yeah, that's right. And that they like they have their imperatives, they have their priorities, right? And and if 
And if we're talking about the need to defend life on Mother Earth, to, to avoid ecological collapse, and there's movement like that growing, capital has a really great, great uh, track record of co-opting our struggles and yeah. shaping them according to how it's going to um, continue the imperatives of capital. And if we're not organized and if we don't understand how this is all working, what their imperatives are, then it's, it's going to happen. That's going to be our, our default leadership, our de facto leadership, because we don't have any leadership if we're not organized in that way. Definitely. And thinking, yeah, and thinking about the, the, you know, something like, you know, an entity like PricewaterhouseCoopers with a presence in 157 countries, which almost reaches UN levels, really makes... I think should have should have us pause to wonder why the presence in all of those countries is supposed to be a more Western based uh, accounting firm and now professional services firm, whatever that means. It's so vague. <laughs> um, and investigate those kinds of things. So kind of like doing those studies, uh, those study like studying up, you know, as some some of the more radical leftist anthropologists like Laura Nader at Berkeley have have pioneered we need to study the elites because what it is because what they do uh affects us and we need to understand why they do what they do and what's so great about your paper is it studies that and it also studies labor and it studies labor in a in a in a less comfortable way than i think a lot of us on the left are used to and yeah. it forces us to face a reality that exists not the reality that we wish existed that was, I think, one of the, the the struggles. So this went out for peer review, right? Because it's an academic article. And I felt that that some of the reviewers that we, we got, I think, were really pushing back, um, not on the factual nature of what we were reporting in the article, but on the fact that it didn't necessarily align with their ideas about like you said that it's a bit uncomfortable like that they they don't want us to say that there would be any challenges to doing this kind of work or that that labor would be opposed to it for any reason except for maybe that they are really really conservative or something like that right and so we did get actually kind of a lot of pushback saying like do you really want to write this what you're you know you might be presenting challenges for progressive movements by, by, I mean, we didn't, as I started with, and I think this is important, we didn't set out to study labor and we didn't set out with an agenda about understanding labor. And I think that that's part of why the way that we ended up coming to it, like was able to capture the sort of messiness of the situation because we just wanted to understand why these power plants were being phased out and what it, what it was going to mean. And, you know, or, originally we were really interested in things like, um, how much is it going to cost to clean clean them up and what's going to happen to the land that they're on? They're on like prime coastal property, you know, so things like that were really initially at the forefront of our mind. And I think the fact that labor creeped in almost immediately and became extremely central almost immediately was really fortuitous. But I think that if if the two of us had been really invested in thinking about labor from the jump, I don't know that it, that we would have asked the questions that we asked and I don't know that we would have gotten the responses that we did. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it was interesting. It was interesting to see how other academic, right? The reviewers are other academics, how other academics has have certain ideas about, you know, well, the literature says this, or the, you know, the scholarship on just transition says this, and maybe you should be pushing. I mean, I remember one of, I'm probably like outing a friend or something, because how many people could be reviewers, but pushing for like, well, why don't you advocate for a state level Green New Deal? Isn't that a good compromise and and in reading it all I could think was well I'm not advocating for anything in this in this forum right I'm simply just writing about how messy the situation is and how these are things we need to take into account and you know I thought that was an interesting suggestion but it was like well nobody that we we spoke to people and asked them what they thought and what they were dealing with and we reported that I'm not saying um I'm not yeah so the idea that that we should be pushing for something or something one thing or another didn't didn't really resonate with me because I just wanted to understand what was going on. Um, and I, I doubt that this that LA is the only city where these kinds of struggles will happen and these kinds of challenges will arise. 
Um, I remembered what I wanted to say earlier when you were talking about the intercommunity stuff, which is um, that the sort of next phase of this project is trying to focus on that a bit more and where we've been thinking about and putting in some unsuccessful funding applications to think about um, how the different communities that provide power to the city of Los Angeles are interlinked with one another and how that might complicate notions of environmental justice. Um, there's been a lot of, um, you know, sort of pollution mapping and, and trying to resolve um, the longstanding environmental injustices in communities of color that are near refineries and near some of these facilities in Los Angeles. But at the same time, as I mentioned, there are facilities all over the country, including for, formerly in the Navajo Nation, in, in uh, you know, working class white communities, um, in places like or Oregon and Washington, and um, you know, in Latinx communities in Arizona. And, um, and, you know, so one of the sites that we're really interested in for this next phase and thinking about how we think about intercommunity um, organizing is this site in Delta, Utah, where the Intermountain Power Plant is currently located, which LADWP owns. It's currently coal being transitioned to green hydrogen or being transitioned to natural gas with the like long-term plan of transitioning it to green hydrogen and there is no utility scale green hydrogen in the US right now. So rather than using one of the, the facilities in Los Angeles as a test case for this, they've chosen to, to use one in rural Utah in a community where the community is very dependent on LADWP for employment. Um, and so this is something we're wanting to look at going forward is, well, how do we think about um, decarbonization and justice in this interlinked system where some entities have had to bear the brunt of, of coal-fired power plants, for example, or of these experimental technologies. Um, they're happening far away from LA where people aren't seeing them, but we need to think about these communities as also communities that are involved in LA's energy system in really critical ways and are also bearing the brunt of environmental injustice on behalf of Angelinos, um, but peop these people are, don't know one another. Do you know what I mean? You don't see each other. Yeah, yeah, and so then where's the accountability? Like where decisions that are made and the folks that have to live so intimately with the consequences of those decisions, right? This is a yeah. huge a huge problem of this top-down kind of move with the, with the Green New Deal in Los Angeles. I, I wanted to just just wrap up by by really um, emphasizing the importance of your work because I think that it it gives us kind of like a warning sign if we don't pay attention to why people are upset like and, and instead we just dismiss them as X Y Z whatever and that is actually more easy to do sadly in this country with poor white people than it is now with with poor people of color i think it should be with everybody like we can understand the all of us below like what's what what are what's going on and what is it that we want what is it that we desire and so your piece because it's a community of color that is organizing against decarbonization initiatives that is something that I, I can see very easily being taken up by extreme right-wing forces um, and attracting folks over to that position because they're going to be saying things that resonate better. And I think that the Trump phenomenon that we witnessed in 2016 and 2020, that caught a lot of people by surprise. And I think that the people that were caught by surprise were folks who probably don't get into the weeds like you did about what people desire and what is it that people are facing, the, the, the struggles that they're facing, and instead are maybe a little bit more abstracting things into Republicans versus Democrats and, and whatever it is that that means for them. I think that your work is really important because it forces us to grapple with the real contradiction that we really need to, to confront because I can see the uh, very right-wing forces co-opting that kind of discontent that exists with people on the ground when there isn't another alternative uh, uh, framework and an alternative movement for, for any of this. 
and it can be very dangerous, it can be very confusing. And so I really welcome the work that you and Andrea presented to us. Uh, it's, it's a really, really great read. Um, it gives you a really great insight, a really easy insight into the way that power, power is being kind of contested and leveraged at different moments and different scales at different places, different contexts that might surprise a lot of us because we don't a lot of time pay attention to the way that policy is made. We kind of do think that it's just local uh, when in fact it's far more than that. And the imperatives uh, are, are, are for, for someone like a mayor of a major city, someone connected to uh, an organization like the C40, which I actually just looked up and it's bigger than 40 cities now. It's up to, it's more than 90 now. So, so that's growing. Uh, so I wanted to thank you so much, Kelly and Andrea, who's, who's not with us right now, but for your, your paper. And I really encourage folks to check it out. It's coming out in a special issue on the Green New Deal in the journal Political Geography, which is set to be published in October, 2022. Yes. Right, and it yeah? should be open access. Um, we went through the UCLA library for that. So hopefully it should be readily accessible. Um, and if it is not, just send me an email and I will get you a copy, though it should be. Thank you so much. That's actually a really great win. So we'll put that in the show notes together with the link so folks can check it out and have these kinds of conversations. And instead of kind of just brushing aside these contradictions, we confront them. And I think that our analyses in movements can be a lot sharper because of them. And we, in our imagination is going to have to be sparked because we need to think of something else because this is a complete impasse. The climate is on fire, it's burning, it's dying. And those aren't the big questions that we're, that we're being confronted with. Instead, it's like these, the, these, these small choices in this really messed up system. And, and we're not being encouraged to think outside of a system where we can create something completely different that respects us all in our differences. So thank you so much, Kelly. Yeah, thank you.